following program is a podcast1.com production. He's a world champion wrestler, best-selling author, actor, and lead singer of Fozzie. Now, now he's rocking the podcast world. Yay! This, this, this is Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, starring Chris Jericho. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. I'm the king of the podcast world, and you're my headline queen and king. I'm the king of the podcast world. Come live your secret dreams. All right, the remedy for boredom has arrived. The People's Podcast is here. Let's go for a ride. From the new Fozzie record, Do You Want to Start a War? That was Bad Tattoo, and that is badass for you. Considering we got some great, great guitar playing in the Fozzie tune, got some great, great guitar playing in Do You Want to Start a War, and got a great guitar player on the show today with five-finger death punch guitarist Zoltan Bathory. They actually started the band back in 2005 after moving to the States from his home country of Hungary. And wait till you hear what life was like for him in Hungary, how he discovered and listened to 
heavy metal and rock music, how he got his first guitar, and how he even learned to play. Plus, he made his first guitar uh, from a, a table. From a table, yeah. Zoltan's also a U.S. Army certified close combat instructor. He teaches U.S. soldiers how to survive in hand-to-hand combat situations if needed. Plus, he's a pilot. He does so many things, so many cool stories from Zoltan Bathory, including the best name in rock and roll. You're going to hear all from him coming up. But first, thanks for using my links every time you shop on Amazon. Easiest way to support the show. And don't forget, every time you use one of my Amazon links, Amazon kicks back a couple bucks to this show to help us cover production costs so we can keep giving it to you for free i got links for amazon usa amazon canada eh? and the amazon uk all right mate we got amazon over here just go to podcastone.com click on the keep our podcast free banner at the top of the page eh? then hit the talk is jericho button you get all kinds of cool stuff on amazon you can buy whatever you want you know you can buy clothes you can buy uh, microphones you can buy iphones you can buy iphone chargers you can buy for the fozzy record do you want to start a war the five finger death Bunch, the wrong side of heaven. You can buy the best in the world at what I have no idea. My new hit bestseller of a book that people are going nuts for. Many people saying it's their favorite Chris Jericho book out of the three. I got to agree with them on that. It's such a such a cool uh, piece of, of writing. Lots of great stories. There's a great story about Liverpool in it. I'm in Liverpool right now at the Echo Arena. If you've read the best in the world at what I have no idea, you know the amazing uh, Liverpool story. Uh, so many crazy things that you uh, edit that so many great things you can buy on Amazon like I said Five Finger Death Punches record The Wrong Side of Heaven The Righteous Side of Hell Volume 1 and Volume 2 they've got Rob Halford The Metal God and Talk as Jericho alumni to guest on that record they just finished up a successful crazy tour with Volbeat and Hell Yeah Five Fingers, super popular. Uh, so check them out, and you can do that through Amazon. And remember, if you use my Amazon links, you can buy whatever you want. won't cost you anything extra. No hidden fees or charges. If you happen to be doing some Amazon shopping, you can help out this show and help out me in the process. Remember. You go to podcast1.com, you click on the Keep Our Podcast free banner at the top of the page, then you hit the Talk is Jericho button, you bookmark it, so you can get to those links in one easy click. All right, Jericho-holics, how in the hell are you? Just uh, chilling here, like I said, in the UK, came to London, uh, then drove to Bournemouth, did the show, uh, main event against Bray Wyatt, working on Tizop, baby. Then flew to Liverpool. That's where I am right now, getting ready for a big SmackDown on Friday this week. You will see me on SmackDown. It's going to be a highlight reel. Talk is Jericho's this show. My other talk show, the highlight reel on SmackDown with special guests, The Authority, Triple H, Stephanie McMahon. You're not going to believe what happens in this. Uh, very excited to be back with the WWE in uh, Newcastle. Then also doing Glasgow, Braunschweig, Germany. Frankfurt, Germany, just a quick little return, but still in talks about doing some future work with the WWE again very, very soon. Also just had my birthday this last week, which was amazing. Went to Las Vegas and saw Kiss, which was killer, um, with my new friend, Paul Stanley. Paul's son is a wrestling fan, and over the last couple months, Paul and I have become friends, and it was really, really cool to get a chance to connect with him and uh, chat with him. You know, my biggest hero for 30 years is now my friend. So another very cool thing that happens if you stick with your beliefs, if you do uh, what you, follow your heart, follow your goals. Everyone knows that my biggest quote is the only people who tell you you can't do something are the ones that have failed. And I got that quote directly from Paul Stanley. He influenced me 30 years ago with that quote to go out and do what I wanted to do, which was be a wrestler, be in a rock and roll band. And Paul's uh, advice helped me to do that. So to be able to tell him that face to face was an amazing experience for me and the best birthday present ever. Uh, even though on November 9th, people said, what'd you do on your birthday? Well, I flew 12 hours from Las Vegas to London. So not the greatest of birthdays on the 9th, but the 7th and 8th, I had an amazing, amazing time. I'm about to have an amazing time coming up on November 20th when we start the Cinderblock Party Tour with Texas Hippie Coalition. That starts November 20th at the Machine Shop in Flint, Michigan, uh, the cool place to start off the tour. Got a lot of great shows coming up with the Flint, Michigan being first, then going to Steger, Illinois, 
uh, on the 21st, 22nd Minneapolis, 23rd Des Moines, 24th St. Louis, 25th Rockford, Illinois, 26th Kenosha, Wisconsin. So many great dates. Uh, go to FozzyRock.com for all ticket info and VIP information. And, of course, we finish up the tour on December 12th in St. Pete at the State Theater. And then the party is going overseas. The Cinderblock Party World Tour starts March 5th in Belfast, Ireland with the Dirty Youth, Cork, Dublin, hitting the rest of the UK, going to Manchester, Glasgow, London, Bristol, Brighton. Then we got some shows in Germany coming up. We got a show in Switzerland, got a show in Paris. So many great, great shows. I'll give you all the details on those in upcoming weeks. That's at fozzyrock.com for all the dates and cities. Uh, I get asked a, a question quite a bit. I wanted to address it about the walls of Jericho and the, uh, the lion tamer. Uh, when I was in WCW and used to do my finishing move, which was kind of a uh, modified Boston crab that I called the lion tamer because I was the lion heart. It was a very high angle uh, submission hold. And I started using that in WCW and then um, also used it in the WWE. And people always ask, you know, why did you change the style of, 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 of the lion tamer and the walls of Jericho? And why is it different? Well, I get asked this quite a bit. I wrote about it in my second book, Undisputed, but I'll explain it to you quickly. Uh, the, well, the Lion Tamer started uh, when I was in WCW. I started getting a push. I was kind of using the Lion Salt as my finish, which was a little bit awkward. Um, and Terry, T- Terry Taylor, who was the, the booker at the time, who was kind of starting to give me a little bit of a push, said, I want you to use an armbar. I want you to use a submission hold because submissions were becoming in vogue. UFC was becoming in vogue, and he wanted to start having guys tap out. So he said, why don't you use an armbar? And I said, that's kind of a little bit boring, typical Jericho. I'm finally going to get some wins, and I'm debating with the booker over the finish that I'm going to use. It's a wonder I ever won a match ever. I wonder I ever got any kind of push. So crazy. But I said, how about I use this elevated Boston Crab? And I've actually seen Benoit use that in Japan. Very high elevated Boston Crab where you put your knee on the back of a guy's head and really crank it in there. And so Terry said, yeah, that sounds good. Now, at WCW, the guys there were a lot smaller. Um, the guys that I was working with, especially talking about Benoit or Eddie or Dean, all the luchadors, Mysterio, Juventude, all those guys like that. They were uh, smaller guys, Chavo, Guerrero. So when I put the hold on them, I could really crank it in. Um, when I got to WWE, the guys were bigger. You have Kane, you got Big Show, you know, guys like Triple H, you, you know, deceptively big guys like Midian, you know, those type of dudes, uh, uh, Val Venus and Edge and you know, Prince Albert at the time, just the guys that I was just thinking that I worked with, Godfather. They were such big guys that to be able to put them in, in an old-fashioned kind of elevated walls of Jericho just wouldn't work. They're too big for that. It's too awkward to get them in that position. Another reason why I wanted to change it, too, is because whenever you put the elevated crab on and put your knee in the back of a guy's head, it has to be the finish. A guy can't go towards the ropes because you basically have to let him do that. And I would have to put on a normal Boston crab if I was going to have a guy go to the ropes and then uh, put on the lion tamer version of the Boston crab if the guy was going to tap out. And it just became too obvious. Okay, well, he doesn't have the the elevated lion tamer on. The guy's obviously going to make it to the ropes. And I didn't like that. I wanted to make the move the same whether he's going to tap out or whether he's going to make it to the ropes. Plus, the guys were too big to be able to put that on. I remember I put the, 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 the walls on Big Show. I put the walls on Viscera, on Kane, all those guys. To try and high elevate them, guys just don't move that way and bend that way. And they're too tall. The legs are too big, too awkward, and just would not be able to do it. Look like crap. Uh, I would fall down trying to do it that way. And like I said, plus, if I go to put the, the hold on and the guy has to make it to the ropes, it just wasn't believable to me to have... It was too much of a neon sign. You know, the, the lion tamer's on, or the guy's going to tap out. Or he's got the Boston Crab on, so the guy's going to make it to the rope. So I figured with the name change from Lion Tamer to the Walls of Jericho, which started, by the way, because Vince said uh, the lion tamer. He goes, well, he goes, we've got too many lions here. <clears throat> because at that point in time, Ken Shamrock had the lion's den, which I think they had for like two weeks. It was like a kind of a octagon that he was fighting guys, and he called it the lion's den. And Vince goes, oh, the lion tamer. We've got too many lions here. Change it to something else. And they gave me a list of names, one of which was the rock and roll finisher, the salad shooter, the uh, hurt your feelings or something like that. It's really, really bad names. You can read them in Undisputed. 
Uh, Triple H suggested the standing torture device, also known as the STD, which I actually liked, but Vince didn't like it. And I said, well, what about the Walls of Jericho? He said, that's your name, the Walls of Jericho. Damn it, I love it, I love it. So that's kind of why I had to change the Lion Tamer to the Walls of Jericho. A, because the guys were a lot bigger in WWE than they were in WCW. B, I just felt it was too much of a neon sign during a match if a guy was going to get out of it. And see, uh, with the new name, I figured I'll just change it and modify it. Now, once in a while, I still use the Lion Tamer if I know the guy's tapping out to it. I did it to JTG and almost bent him in half. I did it to Daniel Bryan, same thing. But um, I think it's probably for the best to have changed it the way that I did. It just makes it better, and it's easier for guys to be put into. Because, you know, you get up to the big leagues, and you work with main event guys like Shawn Michaels, for example. He doesn't want to be bent into that way. So uh, there you go. There's your answer. If I ever go back to Japan, <laughs> I'll bust out the old school line tamer. If not, we're working together here to put on the best match possible and to have the best possible, uh, have everything make sense and make everything look as, as legitimate as, 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 as you possibly can. So that is why the change has happened. So if you wanted to know, now you know. So don't come up and ask me that question anymore. <laughs> We got Zoltan Bathory from Five Finger Death Punch coming up. Talk is Jericho. On the line right now. One of the guitar ninjas for one of the biggest bands on the planet, Five Finger Death Punch. And my favorite rock and roll name ever, Zoltan Bathory is here. How you doing, man? Oh, really good, really good. How are you, kid? Good. <laughs> it's good to talk to you, man. I love it. Zoltan Bathory. I mean, that is so rock and roll. Yeah, I, I like the ninja part, the guitar ninja. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> Come on, yeah, totally, man. Your name is Zoltan. You're a ninja, dude. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> now, is that it's your... Funny is funny because in, in Hungary, like I'm Hungarian originally, this is a pretty common name, like it's both my last and first name. So it's, it's, it only works in America. Everybody, you know, looks... Especially when I order coffee in Starbucks. It's like, <laughs> what did you just say? <laughs> <laughs> What's your name? Zoltan. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I actually changed it to, uh, you know, when I order coffee, you know, I, I, I skip it. I always say Zorro, which gets the same kind of reaction. <laughs> yeah. Zorro. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I didn't bring my sword today, but, you know, that's the name. <laughs> but at least they can spell it, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when I, uh, I lived in Mexico and I used to have to buy bus tickets, and I would say, you know, my name is Chris Jericho. And they would say, like, okay, how do you spell Jericho? And they'd always get it wrong. So I just started saying that my name was Jose Sanchez. <laughs> and then they were able to write it down. Okay, that's I just went with that all the time. <laughs> all right. So that's I mean, funny. so that I mean, let, let, let's talk about that. I mean, you, 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 coming from Hungary, I mean, what a what an amazing story to tell. Uh, how do you go from from growing up in Hungary to becoming a guitar player in one of the biggest bands on the planet? I mean, did did you grow up in Hungary or did you, were you born in the states? Yeah, I was I was born in Hungary. I grew up there. You know, I I pretty much lived behind the Iron Curtain straight up. You know, right. Um, so actually, I lived it. I have a you know I can compare. You know, it's a, it's for another day, but I can compare communism to capitalism pretty fast for people and break it down. Why you don't <laughs> want that? But <laughs> but um, but yeah, actually, I I was actually born there. I grew up there. I I went to school there. So when I came to America, you know. I didn't speak English, so literally I showed up here with a guitar on my back, you know? Wow. And, um, yeah, we had, a, you know, we had an actual, real, very real minefield between between us and, and the Western civilization, you know? Right. So it was a pretty, pretty, you know, crazy way to, to grow up. I mean, the weirdest things, like, um, the people don't understand here or wouldn't even be able to comprehend, I mean... The way you buy a car, for example, you go and, and you put then half of your money and then you have to wait about three to five years and you can't pick the color and it just shows up whenever it shows up. I mean, it's just the most... Really? Stuff that, yeah, it's, it's insane. And, and why is that? Because you have to wait for it to get shipped over or something? Or Yeah, I mean, it, it was, they, they were, you know, because they were, you were only be able to buy cars that were made in other communist countries and they were, you know, just backlogged. So you have to actually wait five years for a car it was insane my first guitar you know for me to buy a guitar was almost impossible so my first guitar actually did involve a, a jigsaw and a coffee table 
I had to. Yeah, I made my first guitar out of a coffee table with a with a you know a jigsaw, and I found a a secondhand guitar that I ripped off the the neck of the guitar. The rest of it was useless, and I put my first unplayable guitar together. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine the action on that wasn't very good. Oh, it, it was unplayable. But you know, but that I guess I guess that's what kind of you know that's what kind of um uh, formed my personality, so to speak, because. I was a guitarist in my head years before I had a guitar, you know. Hmm. <laughs> you, have to, you know you, have, you have to have an absolute determination of, of you know, what you want to do and where you want to go in life because pretty much, you know, well, that was the only way. I agree with you on that. I mean, you have to know and believe in yourself no matter what, you know, no matter what odds are stacked up against you if you really want to do something, especially something like be a, you know, be a, be a rock star. I mean, come on. Everybody wants to be a rock star when they're a kid at some point, but to actually do it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's uh, first and foremost. I mean, you have to love music and you have to love what what you do. I I don't think you know if somebody starts out like I'm going to be a rock star, probably the person is in it for the wrong reasons. You know? Yeah. But um, but but still, when we talk about dreams and you know and inspirations and aspirations, then then definitely um. It's in the picture, you know. Yeah. Uh, musical success is, is tied to this world rock star. But, you know, I, I, just, I was just love, in, in love with music. You know, that was first and foremost, I just wanted to be a guitarist, you know. And, and I just did not, I mean, I just could not accept the defeat, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like the whole country and the whole system was pretty much against you. Rock music was not even, uh, not that it wasn't legal, but you had to give your lyrics to the government Really? You can read it before you can perform. I mean, it was just the most insane stuff, right? Wow. And, and, and I just didn't accept, I just did not accept, I could not accept uh, defeat. I, I was like, I'm, I'm not, I was born here, but it's just not going to stop me. I cannot accept this, you know? Mm-hmm. Don't accept, you know, I do martial arts, and that's pretty much the, the, the key word that always, especially in jiu-jitsu, judo, do not accept the position. And what it translates to really, once you accept the uh uh, and, and you know you, you 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 wrestle, so you know what I mean. Once you accepted, once you accepted a position that is is not uh, advantage, right? Just to you, that's when you lose the fight. Well, I mean, much start with, do not accept the position. And, and it's and that's a great uh, motto to have when you're when you're in a fight, and also for life. You know, because like for, for me too, Absolutely. when I was a kid, I wanted to be a wrestler and I wanted to be in a rock band. And, you know, to, to say one of those things, but to say them both, everyone thought I was crazy. And I never accepted the position. Like, well, why not? Why can't I do it? Well, because no one can do that. Well, why not? You know, and I think it's the same for you growing up in Hungary when you said that you didn't even have a guitar, but you were a guitar player. In, in what way? Did, were you thinking of, of how to play in your head? Or how were you learning the guitar without actually having one? First, obviously, everybody is everybody first is, is on air guitarist, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So you got your moves done, right? But, you know, I was I was an air guitarist first, but first, but, you know, I just I just loved you know musical compositions, and I was always interesting interested in what makes a song great, you know. Yeah. So before I would I was a musician, you know, I I was already aware of like, some songs, like what 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 is what does a song have, or how is it possible that music can change your mood? You know, yeah. I was interested in, in the connection. I was interested in the impact that that music can can do to a person. That it it you know, I was listening to rock music and I just wanted to break stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just wanted to trash around and break <laughs> stuff. Or I was listening to other kind of music and it was putting me in a different mood. And and I was really really interested on in in you know sound waves basically. Even without lyrics, music can change your mood. And I started with that. And guitar was the instrument I was the most interested in, but, you know, that's how the whole thing started for me. What kind of, um, I mean, I know, I mean, I'm sure you grew up a few years after this, but I remember back in 1985 when Iron Maiden went behind the Iron Curtain. It was like one of the first time, you know, a Western rock band had kind of gone into into the communist areas. Was there a lot of rock music in Hungary? Could you could you access it pretty easily, or was it kind of all underground? Um, it was completely underground. We were all tape traders, you know. Somebody snuck in a, a tape from, from, from the West, and then everybody would copy it. That's how... It worked, but but it was such a powerful underground scene because for rock music, you know, for us, rock music was so.
sort of the way of, of rebellion. That was our, our middle finger to the government. You know, yeah. it wasn't accepted. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't uh, never on the radio for any reason, any circumstances. Definitely not on television. I mean, we had one TV channel, so you can imagine that. <laughs> um, and and actually, TV doesn't didn't work on on Mondays. Monday was off for TV. Really? Imagine that. I mean, yeah, I'm not even like the whole the whole network was down on Mondays. Yes, there are no t- there is no TV on Monday. Why is that? <laughs> like, just they don't want they want it, you to take a break. I mean, it was a bizarre world, you know. Like, wow. It started at noon every day, noon, not before. Only Saturday you had, you know, a TV started at eight in the morning. And but before eight o'clock, you could you could actually you know you had that uh, just a sign of the network out and, and nothing. Else. Wow. And this is in the eighties. <laughs> this is not like in the sixties. Yeah. This is like just you know twenty twenty five years ago, thirty years ago tops, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's eighties, early nineties. Yeah. Wow. So, what kind of music? Yeah, what kind of rock music were you hearing that that you liked? Well, I mean, you know, I, we we were into all that. Everything came in from the west. But that's what I meant. Like we were trading tapes. Somebody would sneak it in, and then we would copy it, and and that's how it worked. But and as I said, it was a rebellion. It was sort of a light in the end of the tunnel. You know, like mm-hmm. we all believed that this communism will topple. You know, one one way we're gonna grow up and we'll take care of this. You know. Right. And and somehow rock music was connected to that because, you know, as a little kid, what kind of rebellion you can have, you know, build a slingshot and start to shoot at the cop. I mean, what, what are you going to do, you know? <laughs> it's so, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so it's like, it was our way of, of at least a mental rebellion mm-hmm. you know, and a, a mental preparation for a revolution of some kind. You know, we were like, we're not going to accept this, you know? And when Iron Maiden and all these bands, bands came the first time, I mean, they sold that stadium immediately because there were so many of us. The entire generation who was into hard rock, heavy metal, was everybody was there because it was a once-in-a-lifetime situation, you know? Right. You always had to live from day to day. We didn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So when something like this happened, Iron Maiden would come or, or any of these, these, these big... Uh, you know, rock band from the West, everybody would go out because it's maybe your only and one chance to ever see this. Yeah, right, right, because you never knew if they were going to come back again. Yeah, absolutely. Or, you know, the, the system can get, you know, worse. I mean, it, yeah. it, 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 was, it, was, it was very much, uh, you know, when, when the government, the, the government, the police and the, the army is the same entity and it's all, you know... Oh yeah, totally, man. It's all the one, you know what I mean? It's 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 pretty much you do what they say, you know, which is, you know, just read between the lines what I'm lines what I'm saying. When yep. the government, army, and you know, is the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got gotcha. um, you. <laughs> <laughs> Did you uh, ever uh, form a band in Hungary with other guys that that wanted to play too? Yes, absolutely. We we had our little punk bands first, you know, and and it always ended with uh, jumping the the fence and the police chasing us, and you know, wow. It was, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was you know we we bled for that stuff. I mean, like you know, when when you when you are a, a, a rock music heavy metal fan or, or even punk music, if you come from from East Europe, you you bled for that. You know what I mean? You, yes. You made your alliance, your uh, allegiance. I'm sorry. Yeah. You made your allegiance. You, you have to pick. You know, it it, it was. Because I had long hair, I would run from the cops so many times. They would just chase me just because of that. Just because you had long hair, right? Exactly. Uh huh. Yeah. And it's amazing how much how much things have changed over the last you know fifteen years or so. Because I can remember always getting stopped in the airport when I first started traveling a lot. Always getting stopped at every border just because I had long hair. And I you know wear long hair and wearing like a leather jacket or something. It was so you know you were wearing your colors, but you were. You know, uh, you you stood out because of it in a bad way. Oh, he's got long hair. He's a drug dealer. You know, that was yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that was always the way that that people thought. Even in this side of the country, I could just imagine what it must have been like in in Hungary in your world. Oh yeah, it, it was it was it was actually crazy. I mean, the discrimination was 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 crazy. But so, you know, again, that was that was the rebellion. That's what it meant. Yeah, like you know, we're gonna do this anyway. So when did you decide that you wanted to move to the States? You mentioned that you came over with a guitar on your back and you didn't speak a word of English. I mean, how did you do that? I mean, were you allowed to just leave whenever you wanted or did you have to defect or how, how did that work? <laughs> it, it was somewhere in between. Wow. <laughs> so basically basically what happened, um, you know, many, many friends of mine attempted, you know what I mean? It was pretty common that you would, you know, because everybody had to serve in the military. Uh-huh. So. It would pretty so you learn certain things. Also, you learn how to you know how to uh, pick out landmines and whatnot. So a lot of friends, a lot of friends who 
you know, finish their military training and they did their, their year and a half service, they would try to sneak across the border, border literally with a, a combat knife looking for mines. Yeah. I mean, that was pretty common. And um, I was still, you know, I was, going to, uh, I was going to school and education was really good. That was something that, that they got right. Or education was very, very strong. Yeah. And I decided to finish my school. So I didn't go with my friends. I was like, I- I'm finishing school. I need to have this education and then, then I'll, I'll split. And in the t- in this time when I was in uh, I was in school, um, in the college, basically the whole system just toppled. Hmm. And um, so, so I was probably the first couple of thousand people in the first couple of thousand people that got passports that you could use to go to the West. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, so I had I had I had uh, I had finally I had a passport. Before that, we can only go to only go to uh, you know other companies. Right, and then I had a passport. I finished my school, and and you know that was really the time when every everything was rapidly changing. And I actually had a band, uh, a band that had a, a an American singer who was Hungarian American. Basically, he was Hungarian, but he was born in New York. Okay, he was speaking perfect English and Hungarian. So we started to record together, and with this band, we together went out to New York City. So he was kind of a translator because he's obviously his English was perfect, which this band you know fell apart. But you know, sure. But um, but I I I didn't give up. I stayed and you know. So when you came over, you basically had nothing. Like where did you live? Oh, I lived in, in I lived in places that 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 the cops would stop me. Like, what what are you doing here? You know, <laughs> uh, you know you don't fit in this neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, I'm like no, I, I live here. Trust me. I was living in, in hotels. Imagine a hotel that costs you about $10, $15 a night, and, uh, you know, the bathroom is on the hallway. Yes. You know? I mean, I, I did all that, you know, I did all that. In, in every ghetto, every, you know. Co- cockroaches for pets. Oh, yeah. You know, you ride that to work, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I did all that. How did you, how did you uh, learn English then, just for, from being around your friend, or did you watch TV, or, or how did you do that? This is, this is actually a funny story, actually. Good question. It's a funny story how I learned English, learned to speak English. In this, in this hotel room, I was, somebody left a book there, and um, it was a Sashank Redemption uh-huh. uh, from Stephen King. And I had a Hungarian English dictionary, and I literally translated the entire book word by word. And, and I had to, like, you know, because wow. I didn't understand the, the grammar. So basically, I had to, you know, I had to translate every sentence and try to figure out what it means. Wow. And go back and do it again. I mean, it took me about three, four months to read this book because I went in like 40 pages and then I started it all over because now I actually did like the book. I wanted to know what it was about, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so I learned, I learned to speak English. By the time I, you know, I finished this book, I spoke wow. pretty good English. And from TV, I could understand the pronunciation, you know, somewhat. And then, and then from then, I, I read, like, I'm not even exaggerating, hundreds of books. I, I, I went completely berserk on I would go to uh, I would go to the bookstores and I sit there all day reading books. Wow. I mean, and that's... Because I have access. I had access to, to knowledge and I had access to books that I, I didn't have, you know. So, so I, I was reading everything I could. I would read a, a book a day, you know. <laughs> It's really cool to hear that, Zoltan, because, I mean, uh, I never had, obviously never had to learn English, but when I spent a lot, I was spending a lot of time in Japan, and Japanese uh, is very difficult to learn how to speak, so I went to the library and got uh, the characters, they have three different characters, Katakana, Hiragana, and Kanji, and Katakana is like the like our English alphabet, so I, I took a photocopy of all the characters and did the same thing as you did with Japanese rock and roll magazines, and would translate them letter by letter with the uh, the little thing that I had, and that's how I learned how to read Japanese, because I, would di- I wanted to be able to communicate with somebody somehow, but it was hard, uh-huh. you just spent a lot of time doing that, you know? Did you have that little machine, that little machine all of them are using that you can look up characters with? I didn't, but now there's an app that you can go use. You can actually talk into it, and it'll change it to Japanese or Hungarian or whatever. It's like I wish they would have had that app you know, 15 years ago when I was studying one letter at a time in a library book, you know? <laughs> actually, it's crazy. I, I do have some, you know, some Japanese friends. They have this little, uh, 
this little electronic uh, dictionary. Yeah. Even they have to look up character characters sometimes. It's like kind of crazy. Right. They don't know what it means, and they have to look it up. Like, hmm, what is? That? Well, yeah, th- there's actually a- a- an app. It's called uh, Translate. You could get it on your phone, and that way you can. I mean, anytime you go anywhere. It's like the easy way to do things. People are lazy now. They don't have to do things the way that we did. Back in our day. <laughs> yeah, right? So, we all got people now. You know what I mean? Like our parents used to say it. Back in our day, now we are the guys. I know. I know. Back in our day, we actually had to read. We had to read books. Talk is Jericho. Talking with Zoltan Bathory, guitarist for Five Finger Death Punch. He was born and raised in Hungary, moved to New York City, but then you started Five Finger Death Punch on the West Coast in L.A. Why did you decide to move to Los Angeles to start a band? Well, basically what happens, you know, you, you, you live in New York, right? And, and it's first, New York City is really exciting. You know, it's yeah. really the big, big, you know, city. This is really the, the place where all the cultures clash together. And, and, and you live there, and you become a New Yorker after a while. Mm-hmm. It, it takes about three, four years. And right. basically the way you know that you became a New Yorker is that the bombs stop asking you for money. <laughs> That's how you know. Like you're now you're a New Yorker. You have that New York face that everybody knows. Like, oh, he's a, you don't bother him. You know, people stop you. They never stop you again for directions right. or for money or asking anything because you have that New York face, right? Yeah. Which is, it, it works in New York, right? But in a second, you come south, you know, I came to California to visit some friends, you know, mm-hmm. and it was immediately, people like, dude, you need to like, you know, every, you know how it is. <laughs> yeah, the everybody. difference between West Coast and East Coast, for sure. Yeah, I was like, bro, you need dude, to, chill out, dude. tomorrow, just what the hell, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, like, I was in New York City, and uh, I mean, like, look, you know how it is, you, you stand in, in, in line for, for a coffee, right? And if you don't know what you want right away, they're immediately next. Yeah, angry. Yeah. And I really liked the fact that, you know, California was kind of laid back. It had a rock scene at the time. New York had a little bit of a hardcore scene, maybe out in, you know, Brooklyn, but nothing really was going on, you know, Yeah. as, as rock music. So both the scene was kind of dead. It was all hip-hop and, and, and dance music and, and, you know, club stuff, DJ stuff. And the whole lifestyle, you know, that that I noticed that I became an angry New Yorker. I'm like, okay, <laughs> this, this is going to stop. So I, I moved to California, you know. Yeah. And um, and it did work out for me because, you know, first of all, I was I was already like that. Coming from Europe, I always had to fight for everything. I had no safety net, you know. Yeah. If I screw up, I don't have a friend. I don't have any kind of family anywhere to call for help. So, mm-hmm. so to me, it was always like I have to... You know, I can't make a single mistake. I have to always, you know, I cannot not pay my rent. I cannot, I cannot, you know, have a misstep. So I already had that. Plus, you had to be, a, you know, like becoming a New Yorker. Yes. So now I was like a, a bulldozer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I came down here to burn down the town, you know. <laughs> so, so things started pretty fast. You know, I, I, I was working uh, as, a, as a graphic designer, then later a 3D designer, you know, in the entertainment industry. And um, and um, and then from I went into the space industry. I was doing all kind of designs for them. Wow! And while that was happening, I was I was you know trying you know to build different bands. You know, mm-hmm. for a second I joined a band called UPO, which uh, I really liked the band, but you know they needed a bass guitarist, so I jumped in there for maybe a year to okay you know to have them out and whatnot. And then I started Five Finger Death Punch around 2006. So you actually started the band. You you put it together. Uh, yeah. So and first of all, one of my favorite names. I mean, Five Finger Death Punch. Such a such a cool name. You know, very interesting when you first hear it. Where, where did you come up with that? <laughs> well, it's it, it's both the best and the worst names ever. Hey, I, I'm you in know, a band called Fozzy, so I know where you're coming from. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like you know. It's kind of like. Uh, yeah, all the good names were taken. That's right. And there's only 10 <laughs> good names anyways. There's, there's Anthrax, there's Slayer, and then everybody else. This was the only, this was the only dot .com that was available. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> we, were, we were sitting in a movie theater watching this movie, um, Kill Bill, right? Yeah. And, um, and you know, in Kill Bill, there was this five finger or five point yeah. punch or whatever. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and I started to laugh. I'm like, that's, uh, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> you know? 
end up being a big fan of Kung Fu and even, you know, practicing it, you know. So, like, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. This should be probably a band name, you know. And that's how it kind of started. But we couldn't call it Five Finger Lotus Punch because it's fun, right? Right, right. So, so it became Five Finger Death Punch. And and then, you know, just, just put together. And believe it or not, I don't know if you remember this. Do you realize that our first show was together? When? when? Really? Yeah. In 2000, uh, 2006, there was a, a, a delicious rock festival or what the hell out in, uh, out in the boonies. Yeah, yeah, in Kansas City or whatever it was outside of Kansas yeah, City. Yeah, yeah, it, uh, it was out in some field and the sh- festival got shut down halfway. Because yes, of, well, it, it get, yes, it gets shut down during our set. Because some, I think the band was called American Head Charge, and they threw a bottle that hit one of our fans in the head, and our yeah. fan got taken with an ambulance, and they they shut the they told me when the cops come, you got to shut the festival down. Yeah, that, yeah, we played. That was our show. That was our. You guys show. were there. Yes. No kidding. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's insane, man. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, I mean, I remember that we got ripped off and didn't get paid. Did you guys get ripped off too? Yeah, well, somewhat. You know, we, we did get half <laughs> more money. We didn't go on stage because we already saw that something was going sideways. So. Wow, I remember. I, it's funny because I remember the the promoter was like, "Listen, the, the cops are coming." Uh, and when you, I mean, the, the first of all, is like I remember them saying, "Oh, there's going to be ten thousand people there," and there was like three hundred people there. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And the guy goes, "You know, when the cops come, you, you meaning me, would would have to." Tell the people that the festival was shut down. So we did three songs, and then the promoter was giving me the pull sign. I was like, guys, the festival's canceled. And people started booing. And I said, if anybody has any problems, just turn around and look at those guys behind you. And there was riot cops in a line right behind the whole... I remember this, yeah. Wow, I didn't know you guys were on that, man. That's cool. I was there, and I I actually watched you doing this. I watched you saying this. (laughs) Wow, that was your first show. That's cool. That's that's really... I I didn't know that, man. I didn't know that. And and when when, when you guys started, too, um, basically, you weren't on a major label, but yet your first record just went through the roof. Yeah, I mean, look, that's that's the real story, you know? Yeah. And, um... When we started a band, and I think it's anybody out there starting a band or, or, or want to be a musician, I would say that listen to these words, you know, don't accept the word impossible, you know, right. and you have, to, you have to have the attitude of, I'm doing it with you or without you, you know. The, yeah. first, the first record we self-produced, I mean, like the guitars, I mean, today the record is a gold record. I recorded guitars in my bedroom, in my underwear. Wow. Almost all of them, you know what I mean? <laughs> all the guitars, I mean, literally, it's a homemade, do-it-yourself record. We, um, we got bro rates from all kinds of studios to, yeah. you know, to do uh, a little bit of the drums and, 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 and the vocals. We did it in two different studios on a bro rate, you know? And then wow. we pretty much just stitched the whole thing together. Uh-huh. And, and then, we, then we, find a label, we find a label because we were playing shows and, and, and a little bit of a buzz was going on. Um, we put it online and we had a lot of downloads. So there was a buzz and, and, and we got signed in a way that this record that we did was really exactly how we did it. They didn't touch anything, wasn't remixed. Really? Remixed nothing. Yeah, as is. So we handed them a record and it was a, a, an indie label. And still to this day, we're on the same indie label. There was not a single band on it but us. Wow. So, so the, the the big conception of the big mix conception everybody has that you know fighting at that point is this big major label band with a huge support and none of that stuff happened. We never had any kind of advertising budget. I mean, it's a small label with four or five employees. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we never had a tour budget. Basically, what we did when we got the record deal, since we owned the masters because we um, we did the record ourselves. Yeah, we basically told the label like, look. Don't give us any kind of advance. Give us some. Give us the money for 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 tour support. Right. First tour, we had a tour support, and so we could at least go out on tour. And that's how it started. We just didn't pick up any money for ourselves. We went on tour, and the merch started to support the band, and 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 we never looked back. And it was blowing up ever since. But but like you mentioned, the true story. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned how I mean the the first record, the way of the fist, it's it sold. You know, it went gold. I think over over five hundred thousand, six hundred thousand copies. You had like 
top 10 singles. How were you able to do that on an independent label? I mean, they must have been spending some money somewhere. Um, well, basically what happened, the very first, um, it was a really slow build, you know? Yeah. We were, the, 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 way that, the way we could, uh, we could do it because the owners of the label also managed corn, you know? Okay, yeah. And uh, so basically because of that, corn took us out on the road, you know? Uh-huh. And and uh, you know the first the first uh, the first tour was our uh, family values so we went out on family values which is corn's uh, festival yeah and after that we went out on the road with corn and by the the second tour basically our merch sales the merch designs were really good so the merch sales supported the band so we didn't need any right. support you know right and pretty much pretty much it was building that way and in the same time uh the first song that became successful was the bleeding. And it took seven months for this to go top ten. I mean, mm. you, you, you understand radio, so you know how, yeah. what I mean. Seven months is a long, long time. Yeah. But the radio promoter, basically Jackie Kaiser, who, who, who found the band, or, or basically she was the one that championed us and got us signed, she was relentless, just relentless going for, you know, just beating up radio, calling them every five minutes, and, you know, she just would not give up. The girl was absolutely... Is, is that is that full full Metal Jackie? Uh-huh, yeah. Okay, gotcha, yeah. So, yeah, so Full Metal Jackie was our, you know, our, our day-to-day manager, and uh, actually still today is, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and uh, she was just relentless. She loved the band, she believed in it, and, and she was beating up everyone. I mean, every day the DJ I know said that to me, like, oh, my God, would I dare to not play that goddamn song? <laughs> so, <laughs> she would give me a call within an hour, like, hey, uh, you missed a slot. <laughs> you know? and, uh, so she was relentless. And once the first, because first everybody said, like, there's no way, there's no way in, in the world that this band is too heavy. It's not going to happen. We're not going to play. And seven months later, the song went actually top 10. And from then, it's kind of, you know, I guess radio kind of realized. We changed the format a little bit. Yeah. You know? Because at the time, everything was the, the puddle of mods and, you know, mm-hmm. and backs, which is a very, you know, nothing wrong with those bands. It's yeah, yeah. a very typical sound, you know? Right. And, and we were a very heavy, edgy band compared to those, you know? And once they started to play our, our song and once this became successful, rock radio changed a little bit because they were like, oh, okay, so I guess the audience... Well, and that, and that's kind of how you know rock radio is. It's very trendy. So when you, it takes a while to break the mold of what's you know what's radio friendly. They always say like we need a radio song. Well, what does a radio song even mean? It just depends whatever the fans get behind. And now that the fans have got behind you, like you said, you kind of change the whole concept of what a quote unquote radio song is. Yeah, I, I guess I guess it's it's you know a lot of people don't necessarily understand what commercial radio means. Yeah. What what these radio stations do, they have a, a an audience which which worth you know, which has a volume because they can play commercials, and if they can't play these commercials, then the station can't stay alive because that's what pays. You know, yeah, right. Of course. On 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 air. So there's a, a there's a misconception about people thinking like bands are successful because the radio play them. Yeah. You know, and how the radio drives the audience, and actually it's the other way around. Because what happens if the radio plays a song that the audience don't like, they will switch away to another channel. So the radio will start to lose listeners and then eventually go out of business. Yeah. So right. it's actually the other way around. It's, uh, that's, that's the craziest thing. I always read it like, oh, radio makes this or that. You know, that's not actually not really true. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very heavily based on the audience. You know, the, if, a, if a song is successful, you can bet it's successful because people like the song. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of like crazy to think like if you if you don't like the song, right? And it comes on the radio the hundred times. It's not like you're gonna change your mind. Like, well, <laughs> yes, since they played it a hundred times, I will like it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll know you even more, right? So, so actually, it is the people's choice. Well, as and let's talk about your fans. But you guys have one of the, one of the most varied. Uh, eclectic fan bases. I mean, you'll go there and see, you know, soldiers, metalheads, jocks, uh, high school kids, hot chicks, punk kids. I mean, everybody in between. What is it about Five Finger Death Punch that, that has such a diverse fan base that attracts so many different people to your music? In your opinion, uh, I think I think it's uh, it's not the one particular thing. In my opinion, yeah, I think it's uh, first and foremost the lyrics. 
is accessible. You know, mm-hmm. if you if you sing about you know I don't know Viking warriors, <laughs> yeah. you know, and dragons, dragons and rainbows, and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's okay. I mean, you can do that. But how many people will you know? Yeah, it's wake o- up one day and thinking like, oh, well, where is my Viking sword? It's I okay if you're if you if you're Dio, you can do it. But other than that, you might have an issue. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but basically, basically, the lyrics are everything that we we write is based on on real life mm-hmm. and and emotions and 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 or or social events or you know mm-hmm. relevant stuff that. But even political stuff that will right. connect because it's connecting to our lives. So that's yeah. where it starts. And and then beyond that, musically, if I really wanted to break down the sound, we did have a modern kind of sound that started in the 80s. Sometimes we get this thing like, oh, you guys are new metal band. They have nothing to do with that really other than we down to, like all the yeah. bands from the Slipknot core and all these guys were down to in the early 2000s, right? Right. So... When you know when 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 that era came, I wasn't really into the music, but I really liked the sound. It was just so dark and deep and heavy, you know. Mm-hmm. I really liked the sound. But I grew up on you know the Iron Maidens and the Xcept and the, and then all these these '80s metal bands. Yeah. So so basically, what we did was kind of like those '80s metal bands met, you know, that, the songwriting from the '80s and the songwriting of those classic metal bands meets the new metal sound. Right. And then add maybe a little bit, I was really into Pantera and the grooves that they were bringing. So, so that combination created this, this, this music where, you know, it had the new sound, which the, the, the kids right. that were into it in, in early 2000s understand because they grew up on that sound. Mm-hmm. It has the 80s structures and the way the guitar solos and how you used to listen to. So you, you get all the guys who listen to those bands, you know, yeah, exactly. And the lyrics connect, and, and so I think it's a combination of all of these things. It's just the right sound in the right time, I guess. Yeah, and like you said, kind of changing what was the norm at the time. Um, and talking about changing what the norm is, you guys released two records within three months, The Wrong Side of Heaven and The Righteous Side of Hell, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Both were huge successes. Both went to number two at the Billboard charts. But, I mean, that took a lot of balls in this climate, in this day and age, to release two records so close uh, to each other, yet both were huge successes. What were your thoughts and uh, what was your mindset behind that plan? Well, you know, we, we ended up with all these songs. Basically, it, it, it started with having a studio on the road, and we have a, had a little bit of a head start. So when we came home, we already, we already had six, seven, eight songs. And, and the way we write, we always write the music first. Yeah. In that the music has to stand on its own without any lyrics. It should be a song that you can listen to. Right, yeah, so, I got you, yep. You know, so that's how you write. If, if the song fits without the lyrics, you already have something. And once we have done the song, then we give it to Ivan, or, or singer, and, and then he writes the lyrics and the melodies. And so that's our way of working. So now that we had our studio on the road, you know, we, we ended up with seven, eight songs. When we went to the studio, we bang out those seven, eight songs pretty quick, and, and then give it to Ivan. But we were we were sort of in a swing, so we kept writing. You know, it's like yeah. surfing. The waves are coming, you keep going with it, right? So we kept writing. By the time he wrote the eight songs, we had another eight, you know? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and they, they were better than the first eight. So we were like, hey, here's another batch. And <laughs> we kept doing that, ended up with 20-something songs. <laughs> and then came the time when, okay, what do we cut out? Right. We, we, we didn't want to give up anything, you know, so we called the label and told them, like, guys, we have a good problem. Uh, we <laughs> we want to release two records. Because we have <laughs> <laughs> you know, label immediately, like, oh, hell no, you know, you guys going to pick the 12 best songs and, you know, the rest will be whatever, you know? Right. And we were like, okay, we'll, we'll make you a deal. We're going to send it to you and you pick what 12 you want, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, we were sarcastic about it, but they, they called back. A week or so later, and, and they were like, okay, uh, we got the point, so how are we going to do this? You know, <laughs> we, we were going to re- re- release both of them as, as, as one and two in the same time. So well, it would have been almost like the Guns N' Roses, you know, thing. Yeah. And But if you do that, that's 24 songs, you know, that divides the attention, and actually in this, in this climate, as you were saying, it, it, it's pretty pretty difficult. So... 
So we opted to stagger it because it takes about maybe three months, four months for someone to get really used to a recorder. That's true. Yeah. You know, so we figured like, why don't we give them one? And then three, four months from now, they already really familiar with the record, then give them the second part. I, I think it was cool that both of them ended up at, the, at number two in the charts. Like I'm sure, like when the second one was about to come out, you're probably like thinking, like I hope this one doesn't end up at like number fifty or something because people have had too much yeah. five finger, right? <laughs> That's always in the bag, you know. <laughs> it's always a possibility, but yeah, we we, we have a, we have a very very solid stand. Yeah, you know, I I think it's it's also you were we were just talking about what's like the key to the the success, you know. Also, the fans, you know, sure they, they know. They, this is this is a crazy thing. From I hear it a lot of you know a lot of times uh, labels or or your music industry people completely miscredit the music listening crowd. You know, yeah. like as if they don't know. They know. They yeah. know. They know when you try to sell them something. They know. They know when something is sincere. They they completely aware of the fact that they could download any music or they can buy it, and they hundred percent aware of of the fact that. If they buy your record, that supports the band. And if, if they don't, your band will sooner or later go away, you know? Yes. And they'd also know, know too, if, if Volume 2 was like just a bunch of throwaways and you put all the best ones in Volume 1, they'd, they'd sniff that out as well. So if, if they find out, which they did, that Volume 2 was just as good, if not better than Number 1, then that's going to add to you know more support as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and they, they know. And when our fan base... They kind of buy the records almost like a pledge of alliance. Yes. They send us pictures with the record, like, hey, we bought it, you know? Yeah. Well, they, I don't even own a CD player, but I bought it just because, you know? Well, and that's a great point, too. Like, like you said, fans are smart, Zoltan, and they know that if they don't support the, your, their favorite bands, and that includes buying the record or buying a T-shirt or coming to the gig, that the bands will go away. It's People know nowadays that just because you're in a rock band and you're a rock star doesn't mean you have millions of dollars in the bank account. And like, Not that you ever did, but that kind of was always the perception amongst fans. And now they know that's not the truth, that we're out there working just like they are. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And- you know? And I think that's part of it. And, and, you know, if you build a connection and anybody who comes to a show, it, it, it's in the energy. It, it's right there. Everybody can see that. Yeah. If you're a live band and, and our strength is really that when we go and play live shows, especially if we hit big festivals. You know, every time we did that, statistically speaking, when we go back to the same city, our audience doubles or quadruples sometimes. Yeah. Because they saw us in the festival on a festival setting, and they're like, oh, my God, I, I like this band, and I, they come back. Right, and right, right. That's because we, I mean, we leave everything on stage. So many times people ask us, like, hey, where are you guys going to be 10 years from now? And I'm like, the way we're going, probably in a wheelchair, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we beat ourselves up. It's always a high-energy show. You leave everything on stage. Hey, Amen. And a connection with the audience is undeniable. They understand that. You know, we don't, we didn't forget where we come from. You know. Well, and, and also too, how 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 far you've gotten, and you never take that for granted. Uh, what's what's uh, just before we finish up? What are your favorite songs to play live? Um, well, that's a <laughs> that's a, a tricky one because because every song is 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 a um, when I put when we put together a set, you know, it's more like it's about the set because you have to have a flow. That's live. right. So, so what I would say, you know, which is, it's, you and I, again, we, 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 we talk about, the, you know, you assemble your set. So, so you know what I mean when, yep. when um, a certain song is great because it is in between two specific songs. Yeah. If you put three ballads next to each other, even though they could be great songs, three ballads next to each other is just too many, right? Yes. So, so this is always about the set, how you assemble your set, what is the flow. You, you want to come out with a bang, but you don't want to come out with a song that's maybe too technical because your sound guy just gets his bearing together on the first song. So you want something simple, powerful, right out of the gate, right? Right. You're going to drive that for three songs, and then you have to drop one. You have to come down with energy so people can get a, you know, catch a break. And then you go back hard again. So, you know, there's a, there's a science to that. But there are certain songs that we cannot not play. The Bleeding, the song that kind mm-hmm. of spoke us to, is always the last song on the set. We have to play that. I love playing that song, you know. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's basically, for me, it's a sign like, okay, I can get back to my wheelchair now. 
that is over. No, it's 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 a it's a really powerful song, and and people love it and sing it. You know, um, definitely the first song we come at it under and over. It is it's a powerful song. Then we used to have um, we used to have white knuckles, which um, I can curse here. Then uh, <laughs> you beat me out. It's a uh, a song called Burn Mother <laughs> very, very Disney uh, Disney Channel song. yes for sure right For that one's for the kids yeah that was that was for uh, Snow White a soundtrack so, <laughs> so basically that song we have an audience participation you know and, and I love that part so, so it started with you know we have that eclectic crowd that we were talking about right. we have 5-6 years old kids there 10 years old kids girls you know with their, their dads and whatnot. And the Vietnam vets, and pretty much everyone, right? Right. And certain song had such a crazy mosh pit that we started to do these things where we, you know, we look at the crowd and immediately pick out the little kids. Like, okay, they're going to be crushed, let's pick them out. Yes. And we pick them out, put them on the side of the stage for that song to watch it from there. By doing it, we realize, like, what a lifelong experience we are giving to these kids. If I was a kid in Metallica, oh my gosh, yeah. Stage, oh my God, you remember it forever, right? Yes. Or whatever it was your favorite band, Pantera, whatever it was, right? Yeah. And so when we start doing this, we realize like these kids, like it's a lifelong experience and then it became part of the show. So now we actually build the show around it. We stop on a certain point and we bring up the That's cool. or a new song we, we bring up a fan or two and have them sing the lyrics, you know, of the chorus. And people love that so stuff. That's always a, uh, a participation part. So I love that part because it's just really a connection with the, with the audience. Well, and yeah, and you mentioned you have that with, with your fan base, which is great. But I want to ask just one, one more quick question. Um, it's something very interesting. I didn't bring it up earlier, but I have to ask. I mean, this seems it's pretty high, high class stuff. You mentioned martial arts. You mentioned, you, you know, you got the name from watching a, a martial arts movie. You are certified by the Pentagon and the U.S. Army as a modern Army combatives instructor. I mean, you're a you're a ba- you're a BMF dude. You're a bad motherfucker. <laughs> like, what does that even mean? Like, what do you do? Like, do you have to go tra- train soldiers how to kill, or how does that work? Well, basically, <laughs> you know, I started martial arts when I was a, as a kid. You know, I started with judo and I competed and whatnot. And I still, you know, and I came over to America. I had a little bit of a downtime, but, but once I got my bearings here, I immediately, you know, it was a candy store, Kung Fu, you yeah. know, Filipino, stick fighting, everything. Is everything, right. I was, yeah, I was going crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Try to get into everything. But, you know, there's just, unfortunately, I cannot change this fact that there's only 24 hours in a day. So I, <laughs> I can't change that. But um, I, I still do judo. I'm a black belt in judo. And then I added jiu-jitsu. And in Jiu-Jitsu, I compete. I mean, I go to the world championships and, you know, and, and I, I, I do the pro, you know, Jiu-Jitsu tournaments and whatnot. Got a bunch of medals in there, too. So I, I, I do that because I, I love martial arts, you know. It, right. It F- physically and mentally, right? Clears your head, too. Yeah, yeah it's absolutely. It's a, it's a spiritual thing to me, you know what I mean? Besides, yes. I, I love the competition because I don't get the adrenaline dump. When I go into, you know, when I go into the, the mat, it's to me, it's a chess game, and I got my mind clears, and it's like really, really, really just I get sharp, you know. And right. I love that feeling, like I feel, you know, this heightened awareness, and 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 just feel sharp, and and I love that feeling. So that's why I do it. Same thing when I play a show, I don't get nervous. I more people, the better, you know. It's yeah, yeah, sure. This, this high out of it, right? So I've been doing that, and. Um, Army combat is basically, imagine when, because I do a little bit of a Wing Chun Kung Fu too under uh, Randy Williams, who's a Wing Chun Kung Fu grandmaster, probably the highest guy today alive. So you, you add all these things together, and a, a com- complete version, I would say, is Army combatives, because Army combatives, modern Army combatives is, is based on our uh, greater Jiu-Jitsu, but it involves everything else, because... Technically, it's mixed martial arts for the battlefield. Yeah, okay. That's what it is. So you, you add it, it you, because your, your quest is not winning a medal. You, your quest is surviving. Right, right, right. It's a different stage. So, so that's, I, I, was, I got involved with this because um, a very good friend of mine who, who's always with me on the road, he, he, he trained jiu-jitsu, he's a guerrilla jiu-jitsu black belt, and he has black belt in everything you can imagine. Uh-huh. He's a level four army combat instructor, basically, or highest level, 
and he's with me, so we train together, and 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 I started to train with him. But you you know you have to go and certify, you have to pass. It's basically there are different levels, but it's really rare that civilians can do it. And I think um, the the civilian program ended, so you can't even do it as a civilian anymore. Okay, wow. But basically, it's uh it's mixed martial arts, and then you start to add you know weapons. You start to add sidearms, you start to add rifles, knives, and then you build up all the way that, that you have the full battle rattle. You have to be able to fight with full military gear on, you know? Wow. It's pretty much everything there is. And then it goes into details of, of, of um, you know, like say you do jiu-jitsu, right? And if you put an arm bar on somebody, yeah, but the guy has a gun. So now, you you know, there's another hand there that you have to be Worry about better. that, yeah. You know what I mean? Because he can pull, you know, a sidearm or a knife. So you have to, everything transforms into thinking that the other guy's armed enough. So that's basically what it is. Wow. Technically, technically I can, I can do basic uh, hand-to-hand combat training. I can teach military personnel. And, you know, I'm, I'm working my way up. So eventually I'm going to be a level four. So that means, you know, uh, my, my other martial arts background, the judo, GDC, all that stuff, helps a lot so I can develop much faster than somebody who just started, you know. Well, I'll tell so, you what, if, if this five-finger death punch thing doesn't work out, I'm going to hire you to be my bodyguard. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> Zoltan, it's awesome talking to you, man. It's been very interesting. I knew you were going to be uh, much respect, and, and The Wrong Side of Heaven, The Righteous Side of Hell, Volumes 1 and 2, the five-finger death punch records, both of them are amazing. Uh, and like I said, man, I'm really glad we got a chance to hook up today. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely. It was fun. <laughs> All right, dude. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot, Zoltan. All right. Sounds good. See you out on the road. All right, brother. All right. Thanks to Zoltan Bathory from Five Finger Death Punch. What an amazing story and what an amazing band. They just landed the special guest slot on the European leg of Judas Priest's Redeemer of Souls 2015 tour. What a huge tour for them. These dates start up in June. They just finished a bunch of sold-out dates with Volbeat and Hell Yeah and are headed to Japan on November 16th to do Knotfest in Tokyo. Man! Five Finger just rocking it. Thanks to all of you for listening and thanks to all of you for checking out The Wrong Side of Heaven and Righteous Side of Hell Volumes 1 and 2, Five Finger Death Punch's most recent album. And you know the best place to get them, right? Oh, you know what I'm going to say. You got it. Say it with me now. The Talk is Jericho Amazon links. Easiest way to support the show. Go to podcastone.com. Click on the Keep Our Podcast free banner at the top of the page. Then click on Talk is Jericho. You'll see all three of my Amazon links in the UK, the USA, and Canada. A eh? Every time you do that, Amazon kicks back a little cash to the show so we can keep doing this for you for free for twice a week. No extra fees. No hidden charges. You're just doing your shopping and getting it done and helping me out in the process. Don't forget, only a few days until the Cinderblock Party Tour starts Father Texas Hippie Coalition, Shaman's Harvest, Crown by Fire. That starts on November 20th in Flint, 21st, Steger, Illinois, 22nd, Minneapolis, 23, Des Moines, 24, St. Louis, 25, Rockford, 26, Kenosha, 28, Joplin, Missouri, 29, Lubbock, Texas, 30, Dallas, December 2nd, San Antonio, December 3rd, Houston, December 4th, New Orleans, December 5th, Destin, Florida, 6th, Jacksonville, Florida, 7th, Cape Coral, Florida, 9th, Gainesville, Florida, 10th, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 11, Orlando, Florida, 12, St. Pete, Florida, at the State Theater. If you live in one of those cities, come check out the Cinderblock Party Tour. It's going to be the best time you've had all year. I guarantee it. Come check us out. You won't regret it. FozzyRock.com for all information and VIP packages. All right, that's it. Another exciting, exciting talk is Jericho. we got more coming up on Friday, but in the meantime and in between time, stay hard, stay hungry, Peace, love, and hugs. And don't forget Friday. All right. You wanted her. You got her. One of the most requested guests I've ever had on Talk is Jericho. WWE diva Paige is going to be here. I know people are freaking out about Paige. Trust me. She is an amazing interview. We had a great time. Plus, the return of Ash, the fish expert, one of my most popular guests. He's got some thoughts on the new Lake Monster video from Iceland that just surfaced recently. No pun intended. See what I did there. We'll see what he thinks that Lake Monster is. Tune in on Friday. Ash, the fish expert, and Paige are going to be here. It's going to be a great show. Yeah, boy. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday. Wednesday and Friday at podcast1.com. That's podcastone.com.